And we are back with our Saturday uh, special here at the Geopolitical Pivot. Your host, Samaj McDowell, and the boys and woman is back in town. And unfortunately, uh, Brian Rivas is still with us. Yeah, I think you guys all have to do this. Yeah, always. It's going to be He slept in like, the, the trash room. Um, but you know, he's here. I was actually at the elevator, and like he was like sneaking down the stairs. Was he really? And I saw his reflection on like, the elevator door, and I was just like, God damn. Brian Reeves is let him in again. And this is a this is a national security crisis. Uh, <laughs> this is a problem. But um, now today um, we are going to do some updates as far as like Russian uh, positions, what's kind of like what's going on around Kiev. That won't be the bulk of our conversations today, but. Um, I think it's been kind of a consensus that we've hammered the hell out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict since it started. Mm -hmm. And granted, yes, it's very important that we make sure that accurate information is out there, confirmed information is out there, um, and that everything that's going on is valid. Uh, however, you know, we also understand that we don't want it to be the only thing that we talk about here on the pivot. I mean, we're talking about geopolitics of the world, um, not just this one particular hot spot. It's been a hot spot since like the year 862. So, with that, Wainwright, take it away. Yeah, really, the goal of this podcast when we talk about Russia, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, psychological operations today, um, how Russia and Ukraine have been twisting the narrative to fit their own um, personal advantages. We're also going to talk a lot about Iran, how Iran is funding uh, proxies like Hezbollah, Hamas. Um, we're going to talk about the composition of, of those groups. Um, and we're also going to talk about how he Hezbollah and Hamas kind of became state uh, military forces and integrated into the governmental structure of Lebanon and the West Bank. And then we're going to finish off the podcast by talking a little bit about Alexander Dugan, um, kind of a, a Russian intellectual thinker, and how he's influenced... Russia's government uh, throughout the 2010s and 2000s. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just to kind of start off the podcast, we're going to go to Dan here. And Dan, he, he came across an interesting article that kind of um, encapsulates how Russia is using proxies to um, uh, strengthen um, its narrative throughout the world. So if you want to take that away. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, great, great to be back. Good to see you guys again. Um, so yeah, this uh, is a very interesting uh, article from the Saker that we found one month into the Russian special operation in the Ukraine, or you know they say the Ukraine, of course. And, and can you talk about who this guy is, real quick, the Saker? Um, what you know about him? Yeah. So from what I understand, this is a an Iceland-based uh, or an Icelandic-based um, pro-Russian blog, essentially. Um, reasonably well informed on politics in terms of you know generally understanding what's going on but very blatantly pro-putin pro-russian um you know objectively propaganda but propaganda from a well-informed sort of perspective which in some cases can make it more convincing to people and it's of course useful to read these things and try to understand um both what is being believed on the other side and what they want more people to believe you know it's like what are the lies they're telling themselves what are the lies that they're believing and what do they want other people to believe? Mm -hmm. So uh, what this article sort of refers to a lot 
um, is that, you know, oh, the Russian forces are not killing civilians. The Russian forces are primarily attacking what he refers to as the Ukra-Nazis, the Ukrainian Nazis. Um, he says that the Nazi force in Ukraine is based in uh, largely in Mariupol and is a sacred symbol of the heroic Ukrainian resistance to them. Um, and he says that they have this Azovstal that's a huge and very strong industrial complex that the Russians are trying to, um, you know, take the hard way, as he refers to. Um, he also indicates that the, the Russians are pulling away from uh, the Kiev area is a sort of, um, he almost refers to that not, not necessarily as a victory, but pretty much as everything but. Um, and insists that the uh, the regrouping of the forces is primarily to allow them to more effectively carry out counterinsurgency and uh, room clearing type operations in places like Mariupol and in the Donbass region. See, and that's interesting too, Dan, because this guy, the Saker, he's saying kind of the same thing that the Institute for the Study of War has been saying in its assessments. It's just a different tone. Exactly. So same information, different tones from two yeah. different outlets. Well, one of um, you know one of the things that has always been um, inherent in Russian propaganda is, you know, in order to make it believable, you're taking essentially uh, an element of truth and then you're wrapping it in the narrative that you want to, uh, that you want, and then supplementing that with difficult to confirm um, untrue information. Difficult to, difficult to, I guess, confirm as untrue, mm -hmm. um, but untrue information. Um, he also talks a lot about the NATO stay behind forces, which um, I know that uh, a lot of NATO countries had these sort of forces, um, and these are actually they're very, very interesting from a logistical and a military perspective. Um, very often these were special forces personnel who were essentially trained, um, similar to how the, some of the Green Berets do today, to uh, organize and run counterinsurgency, or sorry, to organize and run insurgency in um, the countries that they were effectively staying behind in. They would have caches of weapons, they would start uh, preparing human intelligence networks prior to the war, and he sort of refers to these stay-behind forces. He says these NATO stay-behind forces are directly linked to European neo-Nazis. It's all run by the USA, um, and you know these are all these forces which Russia has to worry about in Ukraine, but also is going to have to worry about in the rest of Europe. And the things he does say about the rest of Europe is uh, are really, really, really kind of disturbing. Um, he indicates that um, with, uh, with the current situation in Ukraine, Russia is trying to, you know, obviously denazify the country, but with the whole world now uniting against Russia, he sort of indicates that after this Ukrainian conflict, um, they're going to need to start denazifying other places as well, as he, as he puts it. Um, you know, worrying implications of that, of course, but uh, he indicates that as well where, you know, previously he says Russians were interested in jeans and Coca-Cola and McDonald's. Now they're interested in going to the front. He says, you know, the Russian people feel in many cases, and of course not all of them, but he says that many of them seem to feel that it's the whole world against them and the whole world is sided with the Nazis. And that is, you know, for a lot of Russians, he says that that's invigorating. Uh, it's you know remind, it's rekindling for them the memory of World War II among the youth. Uh, it's making people want to go to the front, want to go fight, and want to pursue conflict in other places potentially. 
Um, so, you know, when we're talking about the long-lasting implications of the Ukrainian conflict, even in the stage it is now, and of course, as we celebrate small victories, like routing the Russians from the area around Kiev, of course, um, we have to consider what long-term this is going to do to Russia's standing in the world, what this is going to do to, you know, Russia's military planning, their logistical preparation, you know, how are they go? what are they going to do next, and how are they going to prepare for that? And more so, how can we prevent that? How can we prevent them from being adequately prepared next time? Well, I, I think preventing the Russians from being adequately prepared to launch another military operation, I don't know if that's possible because whenever you, you are engaged in a conflict, right, you inadvertently, even if you don't want to, you learn from the other side. Exactly. So the Russians are going to learn how to deal with their lack of an NCO Corps. Right. They're going to learn how to deal with the types of trucks and vehicles that are at their disposal. They may decide to get rid of their railroad brigades, because mm -hmm. that's, I think they have, uh, what was it, three or four, maybe even more railroad brigades that are specifically designed to carry um, uh, men and material to the front. They yeah. might just completely get rid of that. Um, I, personally, I don't think there's a way we can stop them from learning from the conflict. Yeah. Um, do, do you have any suggestions on how you know we could capitalize this and make this a good win for the United States? Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, if we don't, if there's not some kind of more significant and uh, I don't want to say extreme, but really kind of extreme action taken to uh, foment as safe as, as safely as it's possible to do so to foment regime change in Russia. We're going to see, um, you know, Vladimir Putin effectively regroup the forces, uh, resupply the forces, and then prepare them for whatever he wants to do next. You know, the the mask is off. The mask is off the bear, um, and the bear was wearing that mask for nearly 20 years, trying to you know be friendly and play along with folks. Um, but now, you know, the mask is off, there's no real reason to hide anymore, and there's this momentum and this impetus to prepare, to reevaluate, and to go on the offensive. Well, no, one thing I want to talk about, specifically with, like, how if the Russians will learn anything from this war, I'll admit, I'm kind of conflicted on that statement, because... I think, yeah, the Russians have learned some, some stuff from this war. The question is, how much do they really implement? Because some, a lot of the problems we're seeing with the Russian army at the moment have literally happened during the Georgian War, such as communications as well as other things. And we're seeing all these replay themselves more, like, more than 10 years later. So the question is, will they really learn all of their lessons even after this war ends, is my question. Well, I don't know. I think the fact that Putin and has gotten rid of a lot of the Russian leadership. He's done a bit of a shuffling. That kind of indicates to me that maybe what's going on in the Ukraine might actually result in some military reforms, but I'm not sure. And, and as to your earlier point, Dan, about regime change, just to clarify, were you saying that the U.S. should look into doing that more? Um, you know, not, I, I wouldn't say, or do you look into doing it more as in like in this case. Yes, I think that um, it should be not only an option on the table, but I think it should be um, for as a way to solve this sort of specific incident, that this um, you know could be the centerpiece of that table, um, and I know that obviously it's it's a very very tricky topic. It's a very tricky thing to get into, um, and in most cases, you know, it's not something that the U.S. should be engaging in. Um, I think that this is a very very unusual case compared to what we've seen historically. 
Um, and the kind of case that if something is not done effectively soon, not done while uh, Russia is sort of showing weakness, while there's blood in the water, um, the window to do something uh, of, of that nature is going to shut, and it's going to stay shut for a very long time. Um, and from that point, I think that things will get significantly worse and more dangerous as far as Russia is concerned before they will get better. And for the Russian people, too, who are obviously suffering under this as well. Yeah, I, I got two points on that. I'm not sure I completely agree with your suggestion for two reasons. One, say we, we incentivize regime change in Russia in some way, yeah. shape, or form. What are we replacing Putin with? That's a great are we, question. Are we replacing that's, him with a communist? That's everything I'm afraid of, actually, because who says that what comes after Putin will be a stable government? Yeah. And, and the other, and I'll let you talk some much after I put my second point in here. This other point is Putin is old. Yes. What He is what? Reaching late he's 60s? He's late 60s, right? Late 60s, Ricky? 69. So he, he's. Older men, they, they tend not to care. be care or be much. Yeah, well, it's true. It's true. Like they don't have the same energy to do a lot of this stuff as a younger man. There are exceptions, right? Donald Trump, he was very energetic, but 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 there, he's. I don't think he's going to be much of a threat as he ages out. Um, Samaj, you're going to have something to say um, related to that, or just completely different? It was going off the notions of like um, that notion of like you. We don't know what could potentially happen yeah. after Putin goes away. And that has been a recurring, a recurring um, kind of trend in Russian political history, even looking at czars. Um, even going back to the Grand Prince of Kiev, where the, the, essentially the institutions that they have, looking at Russia, um, if you don't have, and this is something that, for example, Catherine the Great went through when she first became Empress, where if you don't have that sense of strength, um, if you lose wars, mm -hmm. if you are perceived by, back then, the boyars, now the oligarchs, as weak, um, if the people, I mean, like, for example, there was history in Novgorod where you had the literal people tell mayors, yeah, we don't like you, so leave. And if you don't, then we'll force you. So, with Putin, um, yeah, he created you know the, the National Guard, essentially, that does whatever Putin wants them to do. Um, but previous czars did the same thing. Um, and it always ended bad for both the czars and the paramilitaries that, that they created after they were gone. And so you're saying the, the reason these guys were, these, these leaders in Russia were deposed is because they lost wars? Is, is that Either they were seen, that's, those are some of the reasons. So, like... Um, it may not have been like an immediate ousting or immediate disapproval, but it was definitely, for example, when Russia tried to take Crimea for like a thousand times, but they always lose, um, but also because Crimea was under the protection of the Ottoman Empire. Um, that was an Achilles heel for the Russian czars or even the empress because it was like, well, if we can't establish our own sense of national identity within international relations um, and the people in order to keep such a massive country like Russia together you need unfortunately an autocratic ruler but if that autocratic ruler can't win wars then how can he actually protect us he can't yeah I'm gonna combine critical thinking with a bit of speculation here I'm gonna yeah. start with Dan here yes if there was some kind of regime change right mm-hmm 
what is the most likely outcome of the regime change against Russia? Like we say we depose Putin, what's the most likely consequence? Yeah. What's the most dangerous consequence? And then finally, what is the consequence that's most helpful to the U.S. moving forward? It's a great question. Thank you. Um, You're very welcome, Dan. So yeah, so take credit. Take credit. Anyway, go ahead, Dan. I would say that uh, the the most likely scenario in terms of regime change in Russia, I don't think that the people would be able to conduct any kind of regime change on their own. I don't think the oligarchs are capable of it. I think the only force that is really capable of actually changing the regime in Russia would be the Siloviki, the security class. Mm -hmm. um, and much of that class is actually rallying behind Putin right now, although there are individuals within that class who are definitely kind of sticks in the mud about that right now. They are being dealt with by the system internally, so our best opportunity would more or less be to connect with those people um, within that regime, within the regime, and effectively say, you know, you've hedged your bets with Putin for this long because you think he can keep you safe. But right now, things are getting very dangerous. We can keep you safe if you hedge your bets with us. If we rearrange the security arrangement of the security apparatus for those people, say to them, we can keep you safe if you can help us to make this happen. Because it does, it, it would, you know, we can't exactly fly a drone into his presidential palace or something like that. I mean, that would kick off nuclear war. Uh, Putin has already made it very clear before that he considers threats to himself directly uh, to be threats to the state as a whole and something that he would engage in nuclear war on. And, that, and I think that's the most dangerous. I think, I agree. I think, that the, I think the most dangerous uh, ending here would either be Putin perceiving or becoming aware of a threat and becoming aware of a foreign origin, of a primarily foreign origin of that threat and trying to kick off a nuclear war as a result of that. Um, although there is kind of a secondary very dangerous thing that could happen is that if the regime change is successful, however, something does not rise up to immediately sort of secure the country, uh, and it, you know, an individual or a uh, government or something to secure the country, secure their weapon systems, um, Russia is going to, you know, if, it, if Russia became a failed state, hypothetically, um, you'd be looking at potentially one of the worst uh, distributions or threats of uh, nuclear crises, nuclear weapons going into uh, nefarious hands yeah. uh, since the end of the Cold War. Um, potentially even worse than that. Yeah, I, I think Dan really nailed like the, the most dangerous courses of action, but like I'm going to go to Brian here and ask, well, what do you think the most likely consequences of, you know, say the U.S. sponsoring regime change in Russia would be? I would say the, I'd say the biggest consequences could possibly just be certain unpredictabilities with it because Dan sort of hit some of the nails on the cop on the coffin right there. Like um hit some of the nails on the coffin. What does this say? Hit some of the nails on the coffin. Makes you exact hit the nail on the head and what? the nail on the coffin. There you go. Okay. Anyway, basically how it's I like my thing for what I see for any regime change against Putin, I feel like it would have to be done specifically by the military establishment and maybe more like higher people within the government to do put it in a replacement, et cetera, et cetera, to do a transfer of power. Why? Because I think what would happen is the fear with a lot of that class is if the people were to rise up and it would create the civil war scenario. We saw it with the Russian Civil War in 1917. Yeah. And even 1905, they lost the Russians lost a war against Japan when they were considered an inferior state at the time, and that almost took the state to, like, the same consequences. So yeah. I think um, the most likely thing, I think, is that's going to happen, and even if the U.S. tries to support it, I don't think they'd really be able to control it. 
like yeah. how Russia goes from there. Especially we tried to be buddy buddy with Russia in the nineties, and that led to eventually a Putin. I mean, once you start something like that, once you start a fire like that, you can't really put it out very easily. You don't really know where it's going to spread. Yeah. Uh, the bottom line, I think, is that something really, really does need to be done, but it needs to be done really carefully, like really, really, really carefully. Because well, I mean. The, the consequences of an action could be really severe in this case. I mean, we could potentially be looking at a Germany 1936 moment right now, um, you know, and, but in World War II there weren't nuclear, nuclear weapons in play. Uh, at this point, it, you kind of have to wonder if the question is not um, if there's going to be a nuclear conflict, but which U.S. city is going to be the first U.S. city that will suffer the consequences of a nuclear weapon going off, and what will be the context of that? Hopefully. Oh we just lost all our. We lost all our Detroit. It'll probably be LA. But <laughs> that's a cheery thought. But, 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 but before we before we go into Iran, um, I, I want to get Veronica Prochko's because Veronica Veronica Prochko's been sitting here with a zen like patience, waiting to give her. Uh, no, I don't like it when she's quiet. Uh, it's dangerous. But what do you, you know, got? I think this conversation is very interesting because we're already kind of looking at when we mentioned how old Putin is that Putin's kind of towards the end of his political career. And I don't think that he has put in the work to have the system in place when he mm -hmm. you know, passes away or whatever happens to him, right? And he has had many fall guys, but he's never had someone who's been nurturing to kind of take his place. So we're looking at this like conflict in Ukraine aside. We're looking at who's replacing Putin down the road anyway, right? Mm -hmm. But with this conflict, and I think the only thing that makes me kind of go, oh yeah, was the nuke thing that you brought up. Because with the, the conflict in Ukraine, our options are giving Putin an out. Because he can't go home and defeat, we've already made, established right. that, you know, yeah. it's impossible with Russia. And his legacy, he has made very many efforts to kind of wrap it with the legacy of Russia, whether Russia is great globally. Mm. That's, that's who he is, and that's what Russia, and that's what it means to him. Right. But... We would have to give him an out if we wanted this to end, or we would have to facilitate facilitate some sort of regime change, like you said, yeah. but I don't think that's controllable. But we're looking at that in the future anyway. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the, the interesting dynamic here. With or yeah. without the conflict in Ukraine, Putin has not chosen a successor, and I don't know how that would turn One out. One thing if, I actually want to add to that, now that you mentioned it, it reminds me, like, I could see one thing happening, minus the war in Ukraine, one thing I could see happening is, say, Putin kicks the bike, bucket, unexpectedly or, or expectedly. What I would expect is for multiple forces, specifically high-ranking individuals, it could be Shoigu, it could be, um, it could be other, I don't know that, unfortunately I don't pay attention to that many names within the Russian government, Dan would do a better job for me. But, I think uh, would but basically, what I see is, what I see is high-ranking individuals trying to gain favors within the Silovigi or who any groups have been Russia to assume leadership. I'm thinking something exactly what happened right after Stalin died. When when Khrushchev, Mariankov, I think that's his name, um, and all of those all of those high ranking people try to do a power grab to get as much power as they could and influence within the Communist Party. I see the exact same thing happening if Putin kicks the bucket. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that if we do give him like a way, I do understand, uh, of course, the motivation to give him an out. Um, I think that we're kind of at a stage right now, though, where if we do give Putin specifically an out here, um, that you know, it, it's going to, you know, it's kind of like if you give him a mess cookie situation, it's going to um, 
just lead to worse behavior in the future. It's going to give them a chance to regroup. I think that there are people who should be given outs right now. Um, I think that there's a lot of people within the Silovicki who are looking for where their survival heads after this and saying to them, hey, Putin isn't exactly giving you that stable security right now, but he's also not protecting you. Um, or he's not protecting you, he's not giving you that security. If we protect you, if we give you an out, all you need to do is get rid of him. Um, I think that that is a much safer plan to stabilize the situation. Mm -hmm. um, and while we do not know, we, we may not know where that can go, I think that giving Putin an out, given the way that he's sort of been handling all this himself, um, you know, will end up with an unstable situation either way. But I mean, only one of those situations is necessarily has already led to this war that could expand and could lead to further wars in the future. I mean, there are, there's already Russians talking about Russian government people who are talking about the Baltics, who are talking about Poland, who are talking about the spread of denazification operations in the West. Alaska. Alaska has been mentioned. Yeah, they, they want Alaska back. They're not going to get it. Uh, I mean, best of luck. I think everyone in Alaska has got a 45, but, you know, best of luck. Let us know how that goes. You know, the Russians will go The Russians will go to Alaska, and then all of a sudden, about a month later, you'll hear, yeah, so everyone in Alaska now has a really nice fully automatic AK-12. They're really happy about it. Sarah Palin stand and watch with a Ruger Red Hawk and an AK, yeah, no, no doubt. Well, no, this is interesting. I'm, I didn't think we'd talk about regime change in Russia, but on the geopolitical pivot, you never know what's going to happen. But I, I want to transition over to Iran right now. That's kind of where we're going to focus most of the podcast on. And, and Samaj is going to kind of take lead on that. Yeah, yeah. Do some regime change. And he's cackling in the background. He is ready to yes, go. Is, I'm if you want, I guess we could do some uh, regime change in Iran, too. Oh, yeah. That will be horrible. <laughs> well, no. Here we go. That's a joke. That's a joke. To be clear, that's a joke. I swear. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know where you want to start with Iran, Samaj, but, I mean, we can start with proxies. I think so many different points. Well, we could go with the proxies. We could go with how they've been, how the relations have been with Russia. Well, the notions of, like, Iranian proxies and just Iran's position um, in the Middle East um, is very important that even before you talk about Hezbollah and Hamas, uh, you, really have, you really have to understand the frameworks that came out of the Islamic Revolution. Um of 1970. Technically the process started in 76, um, but the actual culmination of the revolution was 78, 79, um, and then they are on Iraq War in 1980. Um, so they got, they literally had no break. They're like, oh, revolution, and then bam, invasion. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, from my observations of Iran and how they implemented their proxies, um, as well as Interesting enough, where those proxies are from a historical perspective, um, you gotta, you have to know the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, their Quds Force. Um, Brian, I swear to God. What is he doing now? <laughs> is he trying to disrupt your, your presentation? He is. Big ass. I'm sorry, I wanted water. water. Unbelievable. Anyways, go ahead. The disrespect. <laughs> um, Iranian Revolution. Right, the Iranian Revo Revolution, the IRGC. So they had this notion um, where they wanted to expand their Islamic Revolution. Um, so there were like some tenets of you know, the communistic notion of global revolution. Um, hashtag Trotsky. Um, but, <laughs> but also the note, what Brian? 
You cleared your throat. You had something to say before I continue. I didn't say anything. No, because continue, like you leaned in. Continue, like, your, continue your thought. Go. You leaned in, so I thought you had something to say. I'm trying to give you star time, Brian. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no. I ran in my thing. It's your Oh, okay. Go. That was your first mistake, Samash. That wasn't my first mistake, me being humble. Um, so... The notions of expanding the revolution um, was in some ways similar to that of how the Soviet Union sought to exploit a lot of not just worker grievances, but also um, any type of socioeconomic um, impoverishments in strategic countries to then exploit it for communistic expansions. Iran sought to essentially do the same thing, um, but dealing with the, originally it was the Shiite uh, community. Um, so that's why you look at Lebanon, you look at, um, you go to the West Bank or Palestine, but that's a different situation because now um, Iran, I think it's Hamas, they're Sunni. Yeah. Um, and so the whole point of these proxies are in a way of operating as a force multiplier. So the Iranian military, I mean, it's kind of capable, but it's, they're dealing with a lot of outdated military weaponry that we provided to them when the Shah was still in power. But they're able to do a lot of reverse engineering um, as well as assistance by the other Russians and the Chinese specifically, but also in the 80s and 90s North Koreans. So are, I, just to clarify, are you saying that Iran is still fielding forces with American weaponry or are they mainly getting weaponry from the Chinese, the Russians, or elsewhere? Both. So, yes, okay, it was a generally, okay. But they're the weaponry, like American weaponry, we're talking about, what is the... M16A2s? Or, or, or even just aircrafts. F14s. So like so original, F14s. Okay. And like the original um, Blackhawks, like the A version? Those. Okay. Um, did they have Blackhawks? No. Yeah. I don't think yeah. they do. I don't... I know they have Hueys, but I, don't, I didn't think they had Blackhawks. I don't think... I think it was the Hueys. I don't think they had Blackhawks. Okay. Um, but that was through security arrangements with the Shah. Um, the reason why we had such a strong relationship with Iran before the revolution uh, was because we had this uh, grand strategy, two-pillar goal or strategy, where essentially Tehran and Riyadh would be the two pillars of stability in the Middle East for the United States. Um, also, it was a bulwark to contain the Soviet Union from the, directly from the south. Um, so we essentially gave, whenever the Shah wanted weaponry, gave it to him. And granted, we, in some instances, we knew what the Shah was doing with, like, Sabak, for example, which was the Iranian paramilitary units that they utilized for internal security matters, i.e. what the IRG, well, what the, they have another militia now to do that, but the IRGC also deals with internal matters, uh, but they're much more expeditionary force. Um, nonetheless, once the revolution happened, the IRGC was founded during the Iran-Iraq War, um, so... Um, Qasem Soleimani um, served uh, during the Iraq War. Um, a lot of the IRGC senior command, um, they all fought within the, uh, the uh, Iraq War. Um, their main priority is to essentially, how I look at it, entangle the Middle East into these proxy networks, um, which can be activated whenever mainland Iran is being targeted. So there, in that case, you're not just going to war with just Iran. You're going to war with Houthis. You're going to war with Hamas. You're going to war with Hezbollah. You're going to war, in some cases, for example, Iran worked with the Taliban 
Um, they've worked, now I don't know if they've, they've worked in some ways with Al-Qaeda. Um, their original ideological push, which created these proxies, changed once they realized that they can't really fully export their, their Islamic revolution. Um, because it's not conducive to everybody's situations. Mm -hmm. So then that's when Hamas came around. Hamas is Sunni. Iran is Shia. Um, technically, they, shouldn't, they should not cooperate in, the, in those matters. However, Iran, just like in some cases Russia, is very keen on taking over opportunities. So if you look at Bashar al-Assad, for example, he's an Alawite. And granted, Alawites are minority sects of Shia Islam. Um, that relationship, we saw how effective that was during the, uh, the Syrian Civil War. Um, Hezbollah literally sent their troops, well, their fighters, into Syria to help Bashar al-Assad. Um, the popular mobilization forces in Iraq are heavily infiltrated and dominated by Iranian influences, primarily by the IRGC Quds Force. Um, that started during the rise of ISIS. So Iran systematically contributed to the restructuring of the Iraqi military through the popular mobilization forces. Through there, um, they were able to then seep their influence into key uh, federal uh, departments of Iraq. So like the Ministry of Justice, um, the Ministry of like, uh, Internal Security, the Military Defense, um, police forces, etc. So whenever we were doing operations or Iran was doing anti-ISIS operations in Iraq, they were able to easily go across the border. They were welcomed in some cases because they literally established proxies in Iraq as force multipliers. And then the hope is that we establish these proxies, they then become part of the official state apparatus um, of this, of the new state, whatever that happens afterwards. And then from there, Iran is able to exert their influence. So they don't have to, say for example, invade a country to essentially seize a lot of systematic control. They establish organizations like Hezbollah that was a grassroots movement uh, during the time of the Lebanese Civil War. Um, it was founded once Israel invaded uh, southern Lebanon. And then uh, Iran provided Hezbollah with technical assistance, training, money, weapons, etc. And then now Hezbollah is now part of the Lebanese state. Hamas is now part of Palestinian political establishment. The Houthis, uh, which is an interesting case, because Houthis, their beliefs are actually much more in line with Shia than it is with Sunni. Um, but a lot of their religious practices are much more similar to Sunni practices rather than Shia. Um, the only reason why essentially the Houthis fought against Saudi Arabia is because well, Saudi invaded Yemen again for like the fourth time. Um, but Iran saw the opportunity. Um, interesting enough, if you see a map where most of Iran's proxies are, you'll see the Achaemenid Empire of Persia, where it was Yemen. Uh, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, in some cases, um, Palestine, Judea. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Assyria because when ISIS was kind of expanding into Iraq, there was one point where, uh, I think it was the Quds Force, but someone in Iran like was giving weapons to the Assyrian Christians to fight mm -hmm. against ISIS. So yeah. that was interesting there. But it, and it also kind of ties into my next point. 
and you've mentioned it briefly, Iran is it campaigns opportunistically for proxies. It's not it's not tied as many Americans think to a specific religious ideology. Right. Although they, they, that's a very important part of their regime. Right. When it comes to cultivating proxies, they'll take anyone who's who's they think can help them on the on the global stage. Right, and that's what makes them all the more dangerous in the sense of they're willing to work with anyone um, that provides an opportunity to expand Iranian influence. I mean, they're working with Maduro, and last time I checked, what's Venezuela's predominant religion? It was a Roman Catholicism. Communism? Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it shows the notions that if there's, especially where Iran's economy has been under constant sanctions since literally the Iranian Revolution, if there are any type of opportunities in which they can garner revenue, they're going to seize it. Now, if you look at Iranian military and how they operate, you have to separate the actual Iranian armed forces from the operations of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, uh, Guard Corps, uh, Quds Force. Um, the position that Iran, the state, is in now within the Middle East has everything to do, and I'll give him his credit, Qasem Soleimani. Um, he was a mastermind in creating um, client relationships with a lot of these proxies. I mean, dude would travel literally to Syria. He would travel to Iraq, to Lebanon, to wherever he needs to travel to, to create that personal partnership essentially uh, with these with these factions you know that goes down to the old question of well are you a terrorist or are you a freedom fighter you know if you ask a terrorist are, you, are they a freedom fighter they're going to tell you absolutely we are um, Soleimani capitalized on that to form these proxies and that's the problem the other problem is that now looking at the military capabilities of these proxies mm -hmm. Houthis are doing cyber attacks now um, they have the infrastructure to create drones. They have the infrastructure to know how to create ballistic missiles. Um, Hezbollah is some of the has one of the actual largest arsenals of missiles in the Middle East. Um, not even just ballistics, but also anti-shit missiles. Um, Hamas, their capability is on even asymmetric warfare and being able to um, capitalize sometimes on IDF uh, vulnerabilities. Um, you have the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces in Iraq during the times of the um, ISIS insurgency, uh, where they were able to essentially, because of not only just approximate locations of Iraq and Iran, but also the notions of the Iraqi state was fracturing. You had southern Iraq, which is predominantly Shia, they were essentially dominating southern portions. You had the Sunni tribal leaders that were in the crosshairs between ISIS um, as well as coalitional forces wanting to utilize central Iraq for operations. And then you had the uh, the Kurds uh, in the north. Um, but Iran understood that they could, if need be, utilize southern Iraq as a projection point into Iraq. Um, Especially at that time, if I remember correctly, the prime minister was Shia, um, and was sympathetic to Iranian intrigues um, to assist to defeat ISIS. Um, proxy warfare is Iran's treasured maneuver because it gives them plausible deniability, which is essentially they can conduct terrorism but not take ownership for it. I mean, though we know they did it, but because they 
themselves did not do it, can't hold them accountable. Um, and I'll say another thing. Oh, wait. Well, I mean, just another thing about why Iran so values its proxies and uses them so frequently, and I, I would say very well, um, you can just look at Iran's force structure. So Iran's got about 1.5 million Iranians under arms in their military, but the problem is most of those are conscripts, right? They're not very motivated to be there, and they're fielding very outdated weaponry. Like Samaj mentioned, some of it's from the 1970s. And the Quds Force, which is you know the most famous uh, group in the Iranian military, and the one that's probably the most competent, there's only about 5,000 of them. Out of that 1.5 million Iranian uh, force, there's 5,000 soldiers that can really be counted on by Iran to, to do well in any kind of conflict. So that, that tells me that you know if you only have 5,000 guys under your immediate control that can effectively conduct missions, you need proxies to, to have like kind of a, a base of operations, information, and the ability to um, project Iranian power away from Iran itself. The other thing is that there are also two separate purposes um, between IRGC. There's another reason for the IRGC, and then there's a whole other reason for the armed forces. Can, can, you, uh, it, can you define IRGC for everyone? Yeah, yeah. so the uh, IRGC is the, well, sometimes it's called the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, other times it's called the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, Quds Force. Um, Quds Force is the actual expeditionary component. Yes, the 5,000 right. men, yes. Um, so the Iranian, their actual official armed forces, got to look look at it in this way. They're meant to protect the Iranian homeland. Mm -hmm. They're not going to invade anybody. Yeah. So on top of that, you also have what's called the besieged militia. The reserves. Right. Um, and then countless other paramilitaries um, domestically. That's because if you look at the actual map of Iran, ethnic Iranians, ethnic Persians, are only the center of Iran. They're only about 15% of Iran's right. population. Yeah. If you look at the ethnic maps of Iran, you have the north is Azeri. Um, Kurds are there, Lurs, Arabs. Baluchs in south. Tajik. East Tajiks, yeah. etc. Um, one of the reasons why Iran has a high birth rate is because a lot of refugees in the area go to Iran for for as like they have family there exactly relations yeah um, so a, a lot of the the need for this massive military is for solely for domestic reasons really hence why invading Iran would be a literal nightmare um, but also it's just unfeasible geographically speaking the only way to successfully invade Iran geographically is from its coast um, or by its Azure. Azerbaijani uh, border. Uh, maybe you could try to do the who's that Turkmenistan, but that's just all desert. You're not, by the time that you get to any type of major civilization within Iran, they have already put themselves in a position to counteroffense, to do a counteroffensive. The IRGC is meant to ensure and secure Iranian operations and interests outside its borders. Um, so the IRGC itself, they have an army, um, they have a navy. Um, they are responsible for the usage of Iranian ballistic missiles. So the Iranian military armed forces, their actual army, they don't launch, ma maintain, or develop the ballistic missiles. The IRGC does. Um, the IRGC is the one 
that forms the proxies. They're the ones that train the proxies. Those are the ones that you see doing those training videos in the Persian Gulf uh, with their swarm tactics, with their speedboats. Um, these are the ones that you're seeing there doing operations in Iraq and Syria, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, no, um, a war with Iran would literally mean you're going to war within, unfortunately, the entire part of the main part of the Middle East because of their proxies. They can hit you from any angle. Um, they can disrupt logistics, supply chains, all this. So if you're stuff. looking at Yemen, for example, uh, why the Houthis are surprised? They're at the the Bab el Mandab Strait, which is the area at the end of the Red Sea, Red sea between Yemen and what's that Somalia slash uh, Eritrea. Eritrea. Mm -hmm. um, a lot, a lot. It's one of the. It's the, I think that's the third busiest, second or third busiest strait in the world. Mm -hmm. from commercial trafficking. So being able to essentially put an anti-ship missile, um, give that to your client, and then have them shoot it at a, a tanker or a cargo ship or a naval vessel, um, that's a pretty substantial amount of power to have. Same thing if you have a proxy that's in the eastern Mediterranean in Lebanon, and you have, let's say, a frigate or a cruiser, um, in the Eastern Mediterranean, they could target you there. Um, their ballistic missile capabilities can now hit as far as Rome. Um, they, and they, I mean, it's just interesting. It's also un unbelievable savvy, un unbelievably savvy on how they were able to essentially put a stranglehold on the Middle East without actually putting a physical hold on. Yeah, and these proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, and, and the Houthis, and all the all the other ones that Iran uses, they're cheap in comparison to if Iran was say to, to launch a military invasion or, or station actual military troops at these choke points. I mean, I'm just looking at the uh, Iranian defense spending for the last couple of years. I mean, pensions for the for their armed forces, it's about like 34 percent of their total defense budget. It's about seven billion American dollars. Um, whereas a lot of these proxies, they can get by with, with less than a billion, yep. like all together. So, I mean, that, that's a good deal for, Iran looks at that as like, hey, that's a good deal. Right. Annually, Iran spends about 10 or so billion dollars just on proxy maintenance. Um, but that, again, that's done not necessarily by the, min the Ministry of Defense. The IRGC owns a multitude of front companies. Um, they actually own percentages of the Iranian economy. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's how they fund a lot of their operations. I just wanted to comment that I find it, what I find most interesting about this is that they're very open and blunt about the fact that they do this. Like, yeah. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, all the missiles that you're seeing there's yeah. a, it, they're ours. Like, they, they go out and they say that on, on the record. And I find it's interesting. It's do, do you think it could be like a, a propaganda point for them? Like they can say, oh, we're standing up against the great Satan or whoever. And certainly yes. here. It's, but it's weird for them to have front companies then. It's we yes, it's weird to have front companies. But the reason why they had to have front companies is because they need access to things like euros and dollars. Oh, I see. Um, so they will make actual companies like construction companies, for example. Um, and then they will send those companies to like Syria um, to actually work on development projects. Um, all the while, a lot of that money is being siphoned into the IRGC's war fund. Um, Sounds like North Korea to be honest. Right. I mean, but the Egyptian military does the same thing in Egypt. They own at least 30% of the economy. 
um, when Egypt's new city is being built literally by the backs of Egyptian army soldiers. Um, that one's new for me, actually. Like, I knew about the Egyptian, they're making a new capital, but I did not know it was deep. It's being done primarily by the military, and then a lot of the construction, co- the construction contracts are being sent to companies owned by Egyptian colonels and generals. So it's like the money is being siphoned. Uh, they, the military does everything from construction projects to making refrigerators. Um, the same thing, the IRGC literally does the same thing in Iran. They own about 20% of the economy. So in these particular strategic sectors where the IRGC owns, there's no employment really for non-IRGC um, individuals to come in and do you know capitalism, innovation, etc. Um, if you're not in good standing with the government, you can forget it. Um, if you're not in good standing with the IRGC, most likely you're dead. Um, but the IRGC has systematically even expanded their operations to South America. Uh, we look at Venezuela, for example. Um, the IRG, Iran and Venezuela, they have some sort of interesting friendship where um, IRGC or even proxy forces are given Venezuelan or Iranian passports to go to Venezuela, uh, Margarita Island for trainings. Um, or they go and cooperate with Maduro's internal security forces. Um, Etc. 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 Go, go, Brian. Uh, well, now you want to talk. I want to talk. <laughs> uh, no, the only thing I can see specific from this entire conversation is, um, I guess, generally, obviously, the proxy groups are used as a basically an extension of Iran in general for how it operates, its interests, and its foreign policy. The thing I actually wanted to get into involving Latin America is um, even with how Iran operates with Venezuela. I'm pretty sure Iran also operates in other areas of Latin America because Hezbollah is very active in Latin America as well. Like you can look at the tri-border area between Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay where it's basically a massive drug trade area as well as trade area for illegal weaponry or illegal goods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and this is an area where even some, literally what I just said with Hezbollah, that's actually an area where they get a lot of their funding from besides just for, from foreign actors, mm-hmm. which is which I'm pretty sure even the Iranians are probably heavily involved in that as well, to either get a portion of profit or just to just operate in general in the U.S.'s backyard. No, no I agree. Um, in 2019... The U.S. had essentially, we had released a report, I forget which agency it was, um, that, for example, when you talked about the tri-border area, um, there was, back in 2000, this is going back to 2003, um, there was a time that about $5 billion uh, in, what's Paraguay's currency? Hmm? What's Paraguay's currency? Paraguay? Uh... Well, it's five billion in their currency where it was being essentially funneled through this tribe border area, which is about at that time three billion dollars. Um, as of two thousand nineteen, um, U.S. Southern Command estimated that Hezbollah benefits anywhere between three hundred to five hundred million dollars a year in South American operations alone. Well, it's funny too. It's 
Right, you gotta get around sanctions somehow. Well, it's so crazy with the operations that go on, I always specifically with Hezbollah, that even Israel has to literally make videos on what goes on in that area of the world. Like, right. And Israel, for most, I think most people know that Israel does not usually, you don't think of Latin America when you think of Israel or the IDF. But I mean, in, in 2019, Argentina was the first Latin American nation to label Hezbollah as an actual terrorist group. Um, after the bombing um, in Argentina, the nineteen ninety four bombing, yeah, right? that, yeah, of a Jewish community that killed eighty five people. That one's also they even blame saying that Iran was a part of that as well, and there's right. even some cup. There's a there's something about a cover up between the government and Iran saying that the Argentinian government at the time would turn its back, turn turn a blind eye, and they would get oil concessions from Iran. That is a thing that's that is been thing. on the news a lot. That is a thing. Um, so it's just it's just interesting that Iran is able to essentially project its force through the use of the proxy. But you brought up a pre, uh, a point earlier. Um, I think it was also you. Um, it was probably Veronica. Right? I don't bring. I don't bring. No, you points. brought up the propaganda. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that was the usage of the proxies as well as the the military. It's kind of like a a double edged sword because there's also a propaganda against the Iranian people. The Iranian people have been protesting literally since the time of the revolution. Um, they, it's, you know, protest for multiple different reasons, but the main one right now has been going on since about 2000, say, eight, and that's when Ahmadinejad was president, the one that denied the Holocaust, uh, denies the state of Israel, but that, but yet yeah, likes to go on Twitter and promote uh, NBA basketball. Out of Wisconsin, so that's interesting. You got to pick what you hate and what you love, right? And who doesn't um, love Wisconsin basketball? He's got to have hobbies, right? He's you know he was like, yeah, you know Israel is not a state, the Holocaust never happened, but those damn NBA players, I'm telling (laughs) you. So, so I actually want to ask you because even I think we talked, I think we talked about this previously on the podcast, Uh but I think it was in the Middle East the. I guess it's, when it comes to metrics of who likes the U.S. more, it's mm-hmm. Israel, and then it's actually I think it's Iran is first. I think I forgot if you said that. Or... So the thing when it comes to like the perception of America, um, there's actually a great document. I think Vice News did it. Um, I think I know. What you're and about. they it was on one of the anniversaries of I think it was the anniversary of the Re- revolution or the I some, something with the IRGC, and they went to an Iranian bazaar. Mm-hmm. And they asked the kids, uh, like young teens and adults, like, do you hate America? Just like flat out. And they was like, no. We- well, well, but here's the thing. That's like true for anybody, though. Like, you don't hate some distant, distinct country generally. Like, you, you, hate, you hate the people who are directly hurting you, you see? Like, who are taxing you, who are kicking you in the face. Mm-hmm. Like, America for them, in a lot of cases, is just some distant abstraction. But they don't hate the America. I will say this. They don't hate the American people. Uh, and it's interesting though, because Putin said the same thing. He was interviewed in the early 2000s. He was like, do you, what's your view of America? Mm-hmm. Or at least the American people. He's like, he does not hate the American people. He actually likes the American people because we're passionate, we're ambitious, you can't tell us what to do, we do what we want. Um, we embrace our culture. Um, we, we know what well, we think, we know who we are. <laughs> and, but we, we're proud to be American. They understand the average Americans. They are not the ones with direct access to power structures. 
so I'm not going to hate you. I can't hate you for that. So, they, so they hate Harvard and Yale grads? Basically. Okay, good. Um, and political science majors. Oh, from Georgetown? But it's the notion that Iranian people are essentially the same way. We don't hate American people. They just hate Yale we grads, don't, Harvard Yale grads, grads Georgetown, majors, George Washington, um, yeah. and social media influencers. Um, well, who doesn't hate them? Oh yeah. I saw one the other day. I wanted to, I wanted to throw like a. Are cat. you gonna name names? Or no, you're just gonna I'm not. Answer out? Okay, no, I'm not. <laughs> good. Yeah, best time. Um. So, but they don't like the cons, the abstract understanding of what America is and what it's supposed to stand for. So, but that puts them in a rock and a hard place because if you look at the Iranian Constitution after the revolution, it's essentially guaranteeing them the same rights in some way that we have you know freedom of speech freedom of the press etc but it's not enforced you know um literally because of the notions of well what what we've seen through history with the power of intelligentsia and media is that once an attractive thought becomes mainstream and it's against the regime you have a problem um, but iran has no problem with stomping down on any type of protest against the established regime they'll literally cut off the internet and then hope and pray um, but their notion is how America is portrayed to them as a kid or as children as you said the great Satan this person that you know supports Israel Israel can do no wrong and that Iranians are the ones that are being cut out of of um, an area a geographic area that they molded as an empire essentially um, that you know, Iran as a civil is a civilization state. It's not a nation state per se. It's a civilization state in their mindset. Persians are very nationalistic, and they know about they know their history. They know where they come from, and they have no problem telling you um, about it. What's up? With it? Well, I was just looking at the clock, and I was wondering if you want to talk about Alexander Dugan at all. Yeah, we can transition over to, to Dugan. Because um, that's something you and Dan can speak on, and Brian, right. and maybe Veronica too, I think. But this is something I know nothing about. Um, but we will definitely do more on Iran, um, episodes on Iran. So stay tuned. I do want to talk about their ballistic missile program. Hopefully some of us might do more research. I think it would be interesting to talk more about kind of the success of these proxies, right? Because like, yeah. yeah, we can do that, we can do that think, before we transition. Yeah. I think the Hamas and Iran relationship is interesting just given the, the Syrian conflict and how... Iran supported Assad, yep. Hamas supported the Sunni opposition, yep. and then Hezbollah has been, I think, a success story for Iran, but is struggling right now politically because they had to, I guess, in their success, became kind of a political organization. Right. And it was interesting, though, what's an interesting case about Hezbollah is that when the Lebanese Civil War ended in, like, 93, um, Hezbollah was the only prop, was the only faction that did not have to give up its weapons um, they were able they were allowed to keep their weapons but all the other factions had to give up their weapons um, once that started at that moment that's when Hezbollah started to orient itself not just as a non-state actor but as an actual legitimate artery to the, this new Lebanese nation um, but we also have to remember something about that time as well. Syria practically owned northern Lebanon up until like 2006 um, through their military intelligence. Um, 
And so with Hezbollah being Shia and the Assad family being Alawite, i.e. Shia, um, from my observation then with Iran supporting not just Syria but also now Hezbollah, um, that allowed Hezbollah some wiggle room to then become a political party, to establish serve community services. And that's another thing. When people say, oh, we've got to take out Hezbollah, Hezbollah and Hamas did essentially almost the same thing that the Taliban, at least the Mujahideen did, and that was ingrain themselves within the communities that they governed. That was providing them um, schools, uh, clinics, uh, jobs, health services, uh, community development, uh, even kindergarten and, and child care. So, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood did the same thing in Egypt when they, first, when they got started. And so when it's like, well, if we consider Hezbollah a terrorist group, it was the same reason, it was the same difficulties it was considering the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist group because they actually provided commodity, commodity products and um, jobs and security and protection to people, but they were also funneling terrorist assassinations, etc. So when we're talking about these proxy nations, even down to the Houthis now implementing government structures, they're demonstrating a transition that a lot of these non-state actors and proxies are starting to do. And that's become to go from these militias and insurgents to now legitimate state actors. But then here's the problem. What then happens when they get to a point where they feel they no longer need Iran? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what Vicky was saying. Like, what was it? Hamas is supporting people that Iran. Well, they they do. reconciled, but it's still they, an they, they it's an interesting dynamic because you you would say that Iran's trying to capitalize on anyone that kind of can align mm -hmm. their interests, and there's that religious that's issue there. That's a problem. That's but then be a problem. now that they're political and they're having success, do they need Iran? Is that what Iran wants for them? Right. And that's right? the thing with Hezbollah. Hezbollah won't openly admit that they follow the direction of the Ayatollah. Because technically, Hezbollah has their own um, leader um, that's kind of like a little Ayatollah. Um, they'll never open it. Sometimes they'll say, you know, Ayatollah, Ayatollah, whoever is in charge, you know, we'll follow your direction, whatever, you, whatever it is that you want, we'll do. But domestically in Lebanon, um, they won't openly admit, like, yeah, we were formed by Iranians and we would do whatever it is that they want. Um, so it's a, it's a weird power dynamic, and Iran knows this. So you would say that uh, Iran's proxies are a powerful tool of statecraft for them, but they're also, their connection with Iran is grows more fragile as time goes yeah. on. Yeah, the more that they grow, and Iran wants them to grow, especially those that are around Israel. Um, they want them to grow, but as we know, once you grow to a point, as this brought up in the previous the previous episode that I was saying that when economic and political assets turn into militarization mm -hmm. and you get to a point in military development where now you feel that you are independent and you can do what you want, that's where the problems start to come in. Let's say Hezbollah, let's say Iran wants Hezbollah to do something and Hezbollah's like, no. Because this hurts the people that we're taking care of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, no, we're not doing that. We literally now have a constituency base that votes us into power. And, and this, and this policy over. would hurt 
hurt the them. Stay in power and hurt the people. Right. Now, granted, Hezbollah has more weapons than the Lebanese armed forces, but still is the notions of the public relations part of Hezbollah. It's no. When you're talking about how, at least for Hezbollah, how they're more ingrained into the politics of Lebanon, and it it that helps them drift away from Iran. That makes me think of something that I was uh, not with the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, yep. and specifically that conflict is how Russia uses. They use it to keep control over the Caucasus because it distracts Azerbaijan and Armenia to go after each other instead of thinking, hey, maybe we should do our own thing. And the way they do that is they try to continue. They try to allow the war to continue on. For example, there's been multiple times in the 2000s where. They try both sides tried to settle the issue, and like even one scenario, I think it was two thousand five, where a bunch of armed men broke into like the delegation hall where they were have, doing a street, and they literally took did a hostage crisis and a shooting, and it's believed that it was they were funded by the Russian FSB, and in that case, like if Iran may if Iran wants to keep control of Hezbollah, they may have to do things to either downgrade Hezbollah's capabilities or to basically make them focus on something else so they're not able to leave Iran's orbit. Well, we can talk about that in another podcast, but the reason why I say that is because if you're going to talk about Hezbollah fully, you have to understand that you have to understand that Lebanon's political structures are based on religious demographics yeah, um, that have the not been updated about. at all since like the 50s. <laughs> um, so they literally, after their first civil war, they stopped taking census. Yeah, um, so everyone was very uneasy in how that would play out for political power. Exactly, yeah. especially with the Christians that the mm-hmm. French supported. And so um, that's why, for example, the president the prime minister and the speaker of their parliament are one's Christian, one has to be Sunni, and one has to be Shia. Um, Shias right now will have the bulk of the the, the religious demographic. Um, but at that time, they were seen as the minority. Um, the Christians, these were Maronite Christians, mm-hmm. um, they wanted to you know maintain control, be the president. Um, the Sunnis was like, look, I'm prime minister, I'm, I'm just here. And then there's the Shias. It's like, we want to be important in the Sunni and Christians. I'm like, no, shut up. Um, but looking at the, how that power dynamic um, came into play with the formulation of Hezbollah. Um, and even Israel's um, pushing in that. But I'll end on this before we go to Dugan. When you brought up Azerbaijan, um, the one thing that Iran does not want. I can actually talk about this one, maybe. The one thing that that Iran does not want is an emboldened Azerbaijan, simply because of just how massive percentage-wise there are Azeris in Iran, and a lot of them hold considerable influence. You have two minutes, Brian, to conclude. Basically, what he just said, there's a massive amount of Azerbaijanis that live in Iran to the point that when the last Nagorno-Karabakh war happened in 2020, uh, Iran wanted to support Armenia, and then when that when a bunch of pictures mysteriously showed up on social media, a bunch of people that lived in northern Iran, which was mostly Azerbaijanis, all went up in the protest, which basically scared Tehran into saying, okay, we're not going to support anyone. Yep. Then they sent the military to the border, literally sent tanks, and they were like, if we have to go in, we're going to do it. 
Um, but Iran literally sent tanks to the border. Um, not just as a show of force against the protesters, but it was like, if we have to get involved, because Turkey got involved. Turkey, Turkey signed a defense pact with Azerbaijan. But that's a different... What's... Yeah. Yeah, and you guys wrapped it up in a minute 30. That was impressive. You guys uh, follow yeah. orders pretty well. And then we will end off with our good friend Dugan. And because Dan is falling asleep, and, and I, we got to wake him up by talking about Listen, Dugan. listen, just drop me in there with a bang. <laughs> drop me in there with a bang energy and a box cutter, and I'll be wearing Vladimir Putin's face like a Halloween mask by Tuesday. That's what I'm saying. Anyways. No, Jesus. He's a, he's a, he's a wild <laughs> no, man. No comment. But uh, no, I damn. What, what can you t- give me a Wikipedia summary of Alexander Dugin and and then kind of expound on how he's affected Russian politics? Vladimir Putin's favorite Nazi wizard who's helping to denazify Ukraine. That's the funny part. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's the, the funny. I don't know what's funnier: <laughs> the fact that he is literally like about as Nazi as you can get. Or the fact that he also thinks that he is, like, he believes he can control demons. Like, the guy... He's a Putin. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, no, he's, 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 he's out of his mind. I mean, he really sort of does for the Russian uh, nationalistic doctrine what Gerasimov did mm-hmm. for military doctrine. Um, you know, even though he's not necessarily the most popular or well-known guy right now, um, the influence that he's had on, particularly on... Um, uh, asymmetric uh, intelligence activity and um, the you know down to like the guidebooks that are used mm-hmm. by Russian military intelligence from dating back to the 90s is really astounding. Uh, and Vladimir Putin not only really likes the guy uh, personally, but is also uh, very invested in his uh, political view of Europe, which is basically that in order for a polarized world to really work the way that they believe it should the United States should stay in its own quarter and kind of stick to the Monroe Doctrine, and Russia should be influencing pretty much all of Europe. Which is basically the traditional notion of what how Russia tried to act, especially when they felt this was, this was like towards the end of the Romanov dynasty, yeah. where they felt like they were the bastion of like uh, monarchism, right. um, conservatism. Yeah. Um, if there is any type of reactionary movement, like for example in like Austro-Hungary, um, Russia would literally send troops to go help the Austro-Hungarian monarchy suppress movements and then go back. But continue. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people sort of, um, and I, 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 I think that I generally see this among folks who um, have studied Russia to the like very, very, very basic kind of historical perspective, rather than a more long-term. Uh, cultural one is when they say that you know what Putin wants is to go back to the Soviet Union. No, 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 no. no. He wants to go back to like imperial Russia. He wants to go back to you know a more fascistic period of Russian history. He wants them to, um, you know, but not only in Russia. He wants control over the uh, traditional, um, I guess, ethnic cultural space of mm-hmm. Russia. Um, and so the, the you know the, the the notion of being able to. Um, look at this conflict in this kind of mask off situation and say now um, you know we're, we're, we're going to defuse this the Russian army went in they didn't do so good we'll pull them out everything's going to go back to normal there isn't really going to be a normal after there'll be a new normal eventually and everyone hates that phrase by now but um, you know there, there, there isn't going to be there isn't going to be a back to normal from this um, it's just going to be a more overt uh, interpretation and enforcement of uh, Duginian projects in uh, Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, maybe there have been reports coming out that the uh, the Russians are already working to uh, sort of 
I guess pen test, a penetration test. Uh, the Estonian border, I think it was that I heard. They were look. They had uh, their intelligence folks looking at that. They were trying to recruit Estonians and Latvians to sort of um, give them information on the status of their militaries, on the status of their forward deployed assets. Um, and you know, I mean, in in this kind of environment where uh, they they thanks to um, Putin, sorry, thanks to Dugin's philosophy. Um, and the influence that it has had on mainstream Russia through, not through Dugan himself directly, but through other people who have kind of just copied his um, views and then brought them to a wider audience within Russia, whether the mainstream news, you know, Channel One, RT, things like that. Um, they've uh, they've really kind of helped to normalize this idea. I mean, I, I recall being in Moscow, being at the, uh, I believe it was the Ismailovskia um, open market, which is kind of a bazaar over there. Uh, really puts the bazaar in bazaar though a very interesting place. They sold. They were selling uh, a significant amount of allegedly decommissioned uh, Russian military firearms dating back to World War II in a country where it's very, very, very illegal to buy functional firearms. And they would have like a table of just Makarovs, Tokarovs, and they'd say, "Oh, these are decommissioned, and we'll give you a certificate to indicate the firing pin has been removed." And then the next table over, there was a guy who was like, "Firing pins! Get your firing pins!" Where's <laughs> um, away? Yeah. yeah, but uh, you know, and this was this was like a common tourist destination. This wasn't some secret black market. Uh, it was genuinely harder to get a saxophone than a functioning firearm over there. I'm pretty sure. I know because I, uh, well, let's not Your get into that. Your saxophone buff, we know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I actually played over there quite a bit. Um, I, I, I wasn't joking. Yeah, so, <laughs> Biggie laughs. Um, I wasn't joking. But, um, yeah, no, there, I, I was at this market, and uh, there was this older Russian gentleman who, um, you know, overheard me speaking to someone. And uh, he, or no, sorry, I, I asked him because I saw him putting a an RPK machine gun in what was a very, very bad paper shopping bag. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like this thing was sticking out. It's like, and these, this isn't radishes and carrots. My man has a... A light machine gun sticking out of a shopping bag uh, as he's buying it at this place. And I ask him, like, is that is that like functional, or are you just gonna put that on your wall? He says, no, 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 it works. You know, robota it. It's like, okay. He says, your accent. Are you an American? I said, uh, yeah. Which was actually the first time someone clocked me as American. Usually, thought they thought that I was Georgian or Ukrainian, uh, which had its own issues. Um, but um, he says, ah, okay, American. I said yes, and he says. Vladimir Putin is going to fuck Donald Trump in the mouth. And I was like, okay. And he was like, okay. He's like, all right, have a nice day. It's just this very kind of, you know, there's, there I isn't. I wouldn't even know what to do in that situation. It was really awkward. He had a machine gun, but he was like really old. Uh, I, I didn't really care either way, you know, of what Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump get up to in their free time. Um, it's not my business, you know. I'm not, uh, like, love is love. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but what, I'm sorry, what is, I got, I got lost in the story. It's, it's yeah. So what does it have to do with, uh, do so this, philosophy? the, 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 the philosophy, the philosophy of this, uh, expansionist Russia, this, um, you know, this anti Western sentiment, the decadence of the West, this is stuff that has really filtered into the population. I mean, there really are a non-insignificant number of people in Russia who are, um, you know, genuinely see the, like the, the U S as a whole, as kind of like a longer-term spiritual enemy, even if they like the American yeah. people. Now, that's interesting. I want to pursue that a little bit. So, would you say that Dugan's philosophy is popular in many parts of Russia now because is there actually some kind of decay in America's governing structure philosophy that people are seeing in Russia? 
and they're like, we don't want this to, to come about in our country. Do you believe that's that's actually, there is actually a problem with America's philosophy? I would say the best way to kind of describe the way Dugan's views are in Russia, it's kind of like in the US or really anywhere you ask people like, do you like rock and roll music? It's like, yeah, and they're like, cool. Do you like, uh, do you know, do you like jazz? I'm like, well, not really. It's like, all right, well, rock and roll music came from jazz, but maybe you don't know that, but your rock and roll music came from uh, people of color in the US, maybe you don't know that. Um, but uh, many people follow and espouse Dugan's beliefs with have you know they have no idea where mm -hmm. they came from. They're just like oh this is just my belief system. It's like cool. Well the guy who came up with that is a uh, Nazi occultist. Just so you know, just so you know who you're like associating that with there. Um, but uh, they're not seeing something that we're not in terms of the U.S. What they consider to be um, you know what they consider to be Western decadence. They're like. Oh, uh, you know, homosexuality, uh, people not going to church all the time, uh, you know, people dyeing their hair weird colors, you know, men painting their nails. There's a lot of very specific Dan things. Dan just described himself like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a queer person with painted nails and colored hair right oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, very short haircuts and no beards when I was over there. I did not want to run into any trouble. It still almost did. Um, but, you know, they, 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 they view this as Western decadence. They're like, this is corrupting the West. This is, you know, they, they, when uh, the U.S. military was releasing those ads that were like, you know, oh, yeah, this is, um, like, what's her name? And she has two moms, and, you know, she fights for freedom. Yeah, the, the, the Russians were like, oh, look at that. You know, the they-them army is not going to be able to stop us. It's like, well, unfortunately for you, the they-them army has access to Tomahawk missiles. So uh, they're going to, you know, your, your pronouns are going to be was, were after this. Um, that's yeah, clever. That that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, I will just go off of what um, Dan was saying as far as his Dugans. Dugans philosophy. I w I'm literally just going to read you. Yeah, go for it. Oh yeah. Russia is an empire in a sense which is all absorbing. It is not based on ethnicity or nationality, but on a sense of belonging to the Russian civilization. Um, in court. This um, sounds like the Mandalorian. No, but it, but it makes sense though. Like America obviously takes in the most immigrants in the world, but the second large, well, the third largest is Germany, right? Takes in a lot of Turks and Kurds and whatnot. Russia is the country that takes in the second largest number of, of immigrants on an annual basis. But so I, I can see where he's taking. But even go on that, and then I'll explain why. Yeah, yeah this go for is, it. Yeah. It'd be concerning. Um, but he also goes on to say, you know. Um, he basically said that Putin is a messiah uh, and he was sent to earth to reunify the Russian civilization and he argues that the siege of Kiev is a necessary step in this reunification um, and that it will not be complete as far as his grand view of Russia. It would not be complete until and here's where the quote is, we have united all Eastern Slavs and all Eurasian brothers into a common big space. So this is Dugan talking about what he perceives as This is his philosophy. ideology. This is or this is Dugan talking about his philosophy. This is his philosophy okay. that he is essentially seeking to implement within the echelons of Russian society. But, we're, but we don't know for certain that it's going to be like 100% transfer over to actual Russian policy. That's what I'm asking. Is, well, is Dugan's we, philosophy but we see it in Russia, But we see it in Russian policy. We, but, what, but no, what I'm asking is like, is it 100% transfer or is there subtle nuances 
where Dugan's philosophy does not I hold sway. I think, honestly, in my view, I think Putin very much believes in a lot of the ideas that Alexander Dugan prophesizes, honestly. Especially, if, like I said this earlier, you read the speeches, you read the, you see the interviews, he espouses these same exact things Putin does. I was, and now to explain that statement, why he said, you know, we don't, we're like no nationality, so on and so forth. Up until the the Mongols, uh, it was pretty much Cuban Rus, essentially. They still, it still had interactions with like the Bulgars and the, you got one more time, right? Brian, I'm going to stop that now. I'm going to stop that. You did not, did you drink today? Brian Rivas has the subtlety of a hand grenade. Like, <laughs> so I go back to what you're saying. I'm sorry. Up until the Mongols, uh, it was pretty much ethnically, I guess, homogenous, essentially. Um, there were some... Vikings that came down. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. I said largely. I wouldn't really call it that, honestly. Homogenous? I didn't no. even finish my statement, Brian. Fine, continue <laughs> I'm sorry. Put him in his place, Samaj. Put him in his place. Just, no, I damn! Think, <laughs> I mean, my thing on this, because, no, there's... Back then, when Kiev and Rus was around... It wasn't just homogenous. It wasn't really homogenous. There was, all the Slavic groups were considered different. They were different tribes. There were 12 there. tribes, weren't there? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they were completely different tribes with their own different belief systems, cultures, etc. Samaj is about to and the same. Right <laughs> like, he's looking at you like... You feel him vibrating? Physically? And then, yeah, with the, yeah, there's the Varangians or the... Uh, or basically just the Scandinavians that are in the north and other groups. So I wouldn't exactly say it was just homogenous, the Kievan Rus. I don't think he was going to say it was homogenous. I think there was a little bit more that he was going to add to that. There was, but you know. The Samaj's live is so tight. <laughs> I, I think he already wants to kill me, so I'm going to let him continue. It's been a very stressful 48 hours for me. Uh. Um, like I was saying, Brian. Mm. Thank you. Do you have the notions of... Especially where Kievan Kievan Rus was positioned and located, um, that this was essentially their space. This is homogenous in the sense. I'm not talking about ethnicity. I'm not talking about what village or tribe that you were born in, but homogenous in the sense of the institutions that were constructed since 862. So we're talking about the strong sense of. Uh, eventually what led to it was a grand prince and then a czar eventually. It's a very old civilization. Right. Once the Mongols came and literally did everything that they did, we're not going to go into details because it was barbaric. Um, Got pretty bad. But then once they were able to defeat the Mongols and continue to expand, they started to incorporate other types of I guess nationalities. I would say that. I can't think of a, a better term. Um kingdoms, whatever you want to call it, that were not from that part of the world. When that started to occur, Kievan Rus started to have a problem, and that was that you have all these new cultures, all these new identities that are not originally from this Scandinavian corridor that's not compatible to an extent to Eastern Orthodoxy because at that time they had a marriage with Constantinople. Um, once Russia continued to expand eastward and they started to get into Central Asia and the Caucasus, one of Russia's main problems was discovering and figuring out what does it mean to be Russian. 
Thank you, V. What it means to be Russian. They struggled with that. They tried to figure that out before the Mongols came. Um, They tried to figure that out during the time of the Mongols. Uh, Granted, the Mongols did give the Russian princes some leeway on how they were going to govern themselves. Um, they were, but they were essentially subjugated. Like new princes had to be approved by the Mongols. But even after the Mongols were gone, now they had another problem: Oriental despotism that was brought in from the Mongols. Some things were very kind of similar to their already established way of doing it, but now with extended lands and population, and nothing to do with people that they've never interacted with before. They had to now figure out, okay, well, we're not Russian in the sense that we're from this Rus corridor. We're now Russian in the sense that, well, are we European? Are we Asian? There wasn't a concept of Eurasia at that time. Europe didn't, they didn't fit into Europe because during the times of the Mongolian invasion, they were having, was the Enlightenment period going on, right? Uh, or no, the Renaissance. Um, and they, Russia wasn't incorporated. It wasn't until Peter the Great came around when Russia had the Renaissance. Um, um, speaking about that shared identity, um, one of the one of the things that I found that kind of uh, and I, I encountered this actually a fair bit when I was over there. It surprised me a little bit. Um, I'd, I'd heard about it beforehand, but I didn't know the extent of it. Um, and it's you know it's it's good in a lot of ways, but it's also um, has potential for problems, and it does kind of connect to Duke Guinean uh, philosophy. Um, there's a huge. Uh, belief and currently a resurgence in uh, neo-pagan and occult-based belief systems in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, actually very heavily, a lot of really old traditions, and in Russia. Many of these were actually incorporated into Orthodox faith and practices. Um, Many of these were separate from those practices. Uh, There's a very interesting kind of intersection of like really, really ancient pagan belief systems and specifically the Russian Orthodox Church, um, to the point that you know when you look at a group like a Wagner Group, um, who uh, you know unfortunately, obviously Wagner Group are very very neo-Nazi, um, you know, and they're on their way to liberate the U- Ukraine from the Nazis, of course. Um, but they also, or Dugin uh, specifically, sorry, not Dugin. Um, I mean Dugin does as well, but uh, Dmitry Itkin, the founder of Wagner. Um, was just, you know, one of many people within this organization who had this very, very, very strong um, occult-based belief system of this kind of, like... Um, and this, this system itself, when I encountered people who uh, were believing it, they believed that uh, it's, it's like a core kind of historical element of Russian, of Russian identity is to have this kind of... Um, this occult uh, belief, this, this sort of neo-pagan belief to tie it into traditional Russian culture, you know, many of the, the rituals, um, you know, rite of spring kind of thing. Um, and, it, you know, it's really so fascinating because there's this, there's this huge, uh, you know, to kind of a dual track emphasis in Russia on, um, in modern Russia, thanks to Dugin and Putin, both on the Orthodox Church and kind of like traditional Christian, you know, family values and stuff like that, but then also on uh, very, 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 very much older traditional neo-pagan practices, um, 
you know, maintaining those practices within the context of the church, but then also seeing them as something that separates them from the West and gives them what they consider to be kind of a deeper connection to uh, nature, to the functioning of the universe, and to the, what they see as the secrets of the universe. Yeah, well, I just want to nail this down real quick. Uh, nail it. What is Dugan's relationship with the Orthodox Church, and then what is the Russian government's relationship with the Orthodox Church? And I say this because Vicky has stuff on it, and I want to hear from you real quick before we go to Dan. This would be a pagan tradition in Russia. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Love no, no, ladies. No, Vicky. I want please, to hear please, you please. Oh, well, I think just going into the concept of Russian identity, the Russian Orthodox Church has incorporated a lot of these religious practices into the common life of mm-hmm. Russian people who are not really religious when you ask them. I did a lot of interviews when I was in Yaroslavl, and they're like, oh, no. I mean, yes, that's Orthodox, but that's also what it, we do that because we're Russian, yeah. not because we're religious. And I think that that's kind of one of the reasons why Putin and then to a certain extent he saw it during the Soviet Union, they saw the value of the Orthodox mm-hmm. Church and the cultural identity and the traditions and, and, the, mm-hmm. and the ties to nationalism that come from that. But Putin, for me, has this unique relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church politically to try to legitimize his control mm-hmm. as well as you know show himself as a religious believer. He's very devout. Mm-hmm. I have never seen... Like in America, well, I guess maybe, maybe so, but the you know broadcasting of our president going to church on Easter Sunday, which is what Putin does. It's always on the news. You watch him doing all these things, mm-hmm. um, and it's just very important, I think, to Russian identity to kind of, kind of intertwine them. That I mean, that goes back to the original. Uh, well, not the original, but when. Kievan Rus was starting to get close to Constantinople. Um, but at that time, they were still pagan. Um, but when, I mean, they call Constantinople uh, Zargrad. Um, mm-hmm. Just because of just how, how powerful Constantinople was at the time. Um, and when, even when Eastern Orthodoxy uh, started to get into Russia, um, population was still largely pagan. Um, it was actually a requirement because they wanted to marry to the, the royal family in Constantinople that whomever you're trying to marry has to be part of the faith. Um, you know, Russia could have gone any kind of way. They could have went, you know, it's a Muslim. They could have gone um, Judaism. But apparently, I have a book that was talking that's by Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's his name? Galeria. Mark, oh yeah, I, I know you're talking. Mark Galliati. Yeah, Love he him. has one called Love "Short him. History of Russia," um, and then there is like one of the reasons why Russia decided not to go with Judaism was because there was this belief that oh well the Jews were expelled from their homeland so apparently they weren't in God's favor, mm-hmm. um, so we're not going to we're yeah. not, we're not going to adopt it. Um, they went they went Eastern Orthodoxy to get closer to Constantinople. Once Constantinople fell to the Ottomans, that's when uh, Kievan Rus saw themselves as the Third Rome. So then that's where um, also puts importance on why they want why Russia would want Kiev now. Before Mm -hmm. the church was in Moscow, it was in Kiev. I mean, Kiev was literally the center of at that time the, the Russian empire for lack of better terms um but the orthodoxy church 
uh, was always seen as a much needed um, asset to the state, especially when Russian czars needed funds to modernize their military. Mm -hmm. um, so when, at that time, you gotta remember, Russia was basically a big ass serfdom. Like <laughs> everybody was poor. Yeah, you're right. Um, it was a truly poor nation. Um, but with all the wars they were going, uh, they were participating in, especially it was dealing with Crimea. Um, they needed the money, mm -hmm. and so the church had the money. They had the land. They had the uh, the resources, the opportunities to for Russia to start modernizing the military. Um, so that's when we really start to see the Eastern Orthodoxy, or East Orthodox yeah. Church, um, to be brought into the the state. Okay. When you when you look at kind of the history of the spread of the Abrahamic religions across Europe, um, it really is you know it, it does kind of make sense to see the interlocution of the uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and the Russian neo paganism. Uh, more firmly in Europe, uh, in Russia, and in Eastern Europe than in, say, England or something. I mean, you still see little elements of neo-pagan traditions maintained in, um, you know, the UK, France, whatever. But it's much, much, much more central in Eastern Europe, in large part because they didn't adopt um, a Christian belief system until relatively recently compared to most of Europe. Um, and so, you know, each, uh, as, as these belief systems were adopted and spread historically, you would see more of the neo-pagan traditions uh, incorporated into, um, the, into the Christian religion until eventually they were seen themselves as the Christian practices. I mean, just look at like Christmas, Easter, and, uh, you know, the, the current Christian tradition, those were, the, the way that we celebrate them are adaptations of, you know, of, of, of Yule, of, um, you know, the, the Russians have Maslenitsa now. Which is kind of for them. It's 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 their version of, of uh, to to an extent it's their version of that, but it's a very pagan um, practice. And with how recently Russia incorporated the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, you're still going to see a lot of those uh, pagan traditions persist, which is really really interesting historically, and it's cool to see. But also, given the kind of unfortunate conflux of some of these neo pagan belief systems and some neo Nazi belief systems. Um, I encountered a number of people when I was over there who were both very insistent. They were like, "Yes, I am a Christian Orthodox. I am also a uh, like a. I also practice this like pagan occultism, and I am a neo-Nazi who wants to kill all of the homosexuals and the Jews." Um, which was very, very, very awkward conversation to have with a complete stranger. Obviously, it's like, "Cool, uh, we have nothing in common. Uh, we're gonna have to like, you know." This this is kind of where that's that's like the limit of this conversation. Farewell. So like so just like a, a quick wrap up. You guys would say that Russian Orthodoxy is a marker of the Russian people, but it's not the marker of the Russian people. It's, so a, it's a it's a major marker. Yeah, um, it's a major like a pillar. Marker. But it's a major marker in the sense of control. Legitimacy. Hmm. Um, Legitimacy. Hmm? Yeah. Um, and this goes like I said. I mean, Putin is Putin is not. This he's not as mystical as people or Western media has sculpted his person. Um, he's literally, if you know even at least Tsardom Russian history, you will literally see where Putin has picked up certain things. Um, even when it came down to how he operates with the uh, the Orthodoxy with the Orthodox Church, I remember he did a. Um, 
this was last year too, no, a few years ago. He did a um, some type of military coronation inside of an Orthodox church, mm-hmm. uh, and then did a military, a small military uh, march on church grounds, and it was all televised on TV. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, to if, if to really understand, I mean, like Samaj was saying, understanding Putin, it's it's not that complex. I think he's not. He really isn't this uh, mysterious, complicated figure. But another, yeah, another, another, <laughs> another element that you really do need to look at to kind of understand his psychology. I think as well is um, late Cold War and on. Uh, military intelligence doctrine than Russia, specifically like their asymmetric warfare guidelines, uh, efforts uh, conducted by the KGB, this sort of, uh, there's, there's been a couple of books written about that, and I remember when I was first started beginning to study Russia on an academic level, um, I was looking into those and I was realizing like, wow, you can really see the way that these, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, and 90s doctrines of military intelligence operations have influenced modern foreign policy and the modern leaders over there, in particular Putin himself, who, you know, he he has a, a very very different life uh, life story than many leaders in uh, you know the Western world who have they grew up through democratic systems, they were educated through um, you know largely liberal systems, and then they very often they participated in business or in law or something like that. He's an intelligence guy. His lifeblood is intelligence operations. And, you know, his soul is the Orthodox Church, but his spirit is that of a spy and, uh, to some extent, mm-hmm. that of a, uh, you know, someone who was a supporter of insurgency, someone who supported uh, terrorist groups, the Red Brigades. Um, that's, that's kind of his bread and butter. Uh, really had a huge impact on who he is. I mean, even, you can even see it the way that the man walks. Um, he has an old KGB habit. His right hand sits right by his hip. They were kind of trained to keep that hand close to make it easier to quickly draw a concealed firearm. And if you watch the way that he walks, his right hand never swings. Mm-hmm. Sure. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm reading his autobiography now, actually. Mm-hmm. So, um, sure he has a lot of wonderful things to say about himself. <laughs> yeah, Probably but, won't mention that he's like 5'6 or 5'7, but you know. Me and Putin are the same height. You're 5'7? You you seem taller. Putin is he 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 needs platforms. Cause I'm early. That's why. <laughs> but anyway, so you've been um, working out like a fiend. Yes, I do. Yeah. Like a crack fiend. That's <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what's going there, but all right, we went there, boys. All right. Well, um, we've been talking for about like an hour and forty minutes, so I mean that's pretty good. Um, I think what I want to do. Um, eventually, I want us to start getting some debates on here. Mm. Like, so I want someone to intentionally take one side and another side, and we we'll just well, take a particular su- subject and we'll. Well, Samaj, you know I hate everything you stand for, so I think we can make that happen. I think it's possible. Let me too, Wayne. Right. We're gonna we fight are. after this, like. Just no, so we, we are. No, that's a good idea. We made like a security department too. You know, got some, uh, got some private marks, started signing them over to Ukraine yeah, ourselves. Sure. I'm just spitballing. Yeah. You know. I, look, no, I, I like that idea, um, and, and we'll we'll talk about it more off air. Sounds like a plan. Well, I don't have any last minute um, responses. I just I just want to thank Dan for coming down. He's had a long <laughs> week, so I'm, I'm David. We come down and get some expertise in here, and I want to thank Veronica as well for for. Uh, contributing when it came to Russia. I really appreciate it. And Brian, you're here, so. <laughs> We'd love when Brian's here. I love don't him. speak for all of All right. Well, with that being said, um, 
that is it for this episode. Um, much love. Stay blessed.